Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. I am back. We're back with a regular show for the rest of the week. Washington Watch for NAFB has come to a conclusion. But later on in today's episode, we will be hearing from Chairman of the House Ag Committee, G.T. Thompson. He'll join us next with a look ahead at the issues he's working on as Farm Bill comes into focus. And then in segment three, we're going to talk with Josh Linville, Director of Fertilizer over at Stone X for an update on that industry here as farmers get into the field. And we're going to close today with our friends from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We're going to meet Rebecca Barnett. She's their new director of animal health and food safety. So stay tuned for that. Before, however, we get into all of those issues, we are going to talk about the markets, both domestically in the United States and globally with our friends from Advanced Trading. Joining us today is Cesar Cruz. He serves as the Director of Research for ATI. And Cesar, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us here. We also have Brian Basting, economist with Advanced Trading. And Brian, appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having us here, Mike. Well, guys, we have a bit of a down day in the commodity markets um, looking across the Chicago Board of Trade. Cesar, I want to come to you first. What's the news here that's making the soybean market react rather poorly today? Well, um, I, I would say that the news that happened in South America is great. Like we know that... Uh, Brazil is having a huge crop for both beans and corn. Uh, Argentina is not so good. Uh, and it interferes the trade. Like Brazil is about to export a lot of corn and beans, including exports to the U.S. That's what we've heard. Uh, the East Coast is probably importing some uh, corn from Brazil. They have already imported some beans from Brazil. Argentina will depend on Brazilian beans to crush. They are big exporters of oil and soybean meal. Uh, not only from Brazil, they're also importing some from Paraguay, Bolivia. So that's what is driving the market now. In addition to what is happening in the Black Sea, uh, we know that they have to um, overcome the situation to renew the agreement uh, uh, by May 18th. Uh, so we don't know exactly what can happen. I think Russia is having imposing some conditions to have that agreement uh, renewed uh, with um, uh, Ukraine. They have some delays in shipments that I don't think they're moving as fast as they, they wanted. Um, so these are the, the issues that are occurring in the market today. Yeah, they are. And I'm really glad you mentioned the wheat market there, the situation in the Black Sea. Brian, of course, you spend a lot of time watching the wheat market and studying that. We've got a lot of factors at play right now in wheat with the terrible winter wheat quality crop here in the U.S., this Black Sea issue. When's the market going to take notice or or is it? Have we already priced in all the premium we're going to get? It's a good question, Mike. As we sit here today in, in late April, uh, we're looking at a historic divergence in terms of production potential here in the U.S. The hard red crop in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas is suffering at the moment. We're looking at the potential for increased abandonment of that acreage, uh, despite the fact that our acreage, was, acreage planted was higher last fall. Just the, the poor quality of the crop, Mike, raises the risk of more abandonment. I think the the rain will may salvage some here if we were to get some rain here next week or so. 
but I think we're still going to see some abandonment. Contrast that, Mike, with, with the excellent conditions we're seeing for soft red winter across the Midwest here. I'd extend that up into Ontario, Canada, and also extend it down into the southeast so far. So some dynamics to consider for your listeners, Mike, would be the potential for more substitution this summer of soft red winter wheat into the feed rations, particularly in the southeast for the hogs and poultry down in that region. Because if corn basis levels remain historically high this summer, soft wheat will be an attractive alternative for those folks. On the world scene, Mike, you touched on it briefly and Cesar did too. The Black Sea Grain Initiative is a little bit touch and go for the moment. The grain is moving again. That is scheduled to expire May 18th. I think that the big question of the market at the moment is who will buy U.S. wheat? Because at the moment, Mike, I'd remind listeners that U.S. is the residual supplier of wheat to the world. And most importantly now, as we look ahead to new crop, for 23-24, Mike, we've got an historically low amount of book on the books, historically amount of, of wheat on the books, beg your pardon, for 23-24. Basically, the world is looking at the U.S. wheat and saying it's too expensive. So we are not, we're, wheat is searching for demand at the moment. It looks like feed demand may be an option. All right. Searching for demand. Not something we love to hear for those growers getting ready to put this crop in the ground. But uh, Cesar, as we think about searching for demand, the old crop corn market is doing that as well, or, or new crop corn market, I should say, is doing that as well. And I'm curious, your connections down in Brazil, we've seen a lot of new ties between the government of China and the government of Brazil. How could that impact ag long term? Cesar, what are you watching? Oh, that's probably that's definitely a threat for the U.S. Um, Brazil has its new agreement with China. Brazil did not export any corn to China before the November last year, and they are now exporting. And I will remind you that's not only wheat prices, but the basis in Brazil is extremely low for beans and corn. So Brazil is a very very cheap origin for both corn and beans. And China's probably going to look for the cheapest uh, origin for for those crops. And and Brazil is now not only the cheapest, but it's where they can find a lot of uh, beans and corn in the world. And so, Cesar, as we look out longer term, we get through this year, we get through this Safrina crop, it's 2024, 2025. What is the economic incentive down there for the Brazilian grower to plant more corn? Can they do it? Does the does the math work for those growers? Well, uh, as in other parts of the world, like the inputs are getting cheaper now. They were extremely high during especially the conflict with the Russian and Ukraine last year. But now Brazilians are facing like cheaper inputs so they can have incentive on the cost side to, to plant more. Uh, people always ask me, they can use more land in Brazil. Uh, so that's one thing that the the current government that was elected this year, uh, last year, um, is saying, I think they'll have a plan to expand more areas in Brazil using more pasture areas. I don't see Brazil, they don't need actually to use the forest to plant more corn and beans. So they have a lot of pasture they can use uh, and they can actually uh, reach some of the parts of the agreements they have with the EU to export more to the EU because they're concerned with all these environmental issues in Brazil. So we can see Brazil expanding more the exports, not only to China, but to other markets. All right. That's something to keep an eye on. Brian Ag, we plan long-term in this industry with our capital purchases for growers watching that new friendship between China and Brazil. How should that change our, our view of the future of American Ag? It's a terrific question, Mike. And, and to, to amplify Cesar's point, I think as a producer now, we have to look forward not only to 23, 24, Mike, but it's not too early to think about 24, 25. Now, of course, you don't want to paint yourself into a corner as a grower 
marketing wise. You always want to give yourself as much flexibility as possible. Having said that, though, with the world potential that we're seeing, not only in Brazil, but also in other areas of the world in terms of competition, I think the U.S. producer wants to defend their balance sheet. Balance sheets for producers, particularly moving into the 23 calendar year here, were generally speaking in exceptional good shape. Now, the markets have a way of, of taking that back. That's the way that, that agriculture works. It's a cyclical business. But having said that, there's tools available, Mike, available to growers to manage price risk, not price prediction, but manage it. And to get back to your original question, it is a significant risk to the U.S. grower in terms of the arrangement or the alliance, I should say, between Brazil and China in terms of China it was a big importer of U.S. corn in the last couple of years, Mike. That could go away in 23, 24. A lot of things to keep an eye on here in this ever-changing ag industry. Our thanks to Cesar Cruz, Director of Research at Advanced Trading, and Brian Basting, Economist with Advanced Trading. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And folks, stick around. Next up, we're going to hear from Chairman G.T. Thompson of the House Ag Committee. So leave it right here. There'll be more AOA coming up right after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So, you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. 
The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. On Wednesday, Chairman of the House Ag Committee, G.T. Thompson, took time to address the gathering of farm broadcasters in Washington, D.C. What a privilege and honor to have you here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, we've, uh, we got to get a, we have a, this little thing that we need to get done that, uh, quite frankly, may, may be the most, uh, most effective uh, bipartisan bill that we passed in the 118th Congress. At least that's what I keep hearing from leadership on both sides of the aisle, uh, or one of the, one of the most, uh, uh, most important pieces of legislation. That would be the farm bill. And, uh, and I really, uh, I think all the work and the time that we have put into preparing for this farm bill, um, kind of non-traditionally, uh, for the, somewhat, we, for whatever reason, we, we lost about a, um, probably over two years. Part of that was COVID and hangover from COVID. Uh, but at the same time, when I became ranking member, I departed on a uh, perpetual barnstorming tour of uh, American agriculture. Uh, literally been in over uh, 40 states in two years and, and three months. Uh, staying there long enough to, to identify and to hear and to listen to the voices of rural America and of American agriculture. And it really, I think, has been paid paid tremendous dividends. Uh, we have people at the table uh, from all across this country, more probably more than my experience with uh, the, the first two farm bills that, that I had the privilege of be able to working with in 18 and 14. And I think that puts us in a really solid position going forward. Uh, you know, UE, uh, no one wants us to write this farm bill listening to the, just the voices inside the bubble, uh, inside the beltway of Washington. And we really have from, and most recently, as some of you probably have followed, we were in uh, Binghamton, New York, at Broome County Extension Office, where the Farm Bureau was given birth. I guess that's where it started. It was kind of cool, the history there. Didn't know that. Uh, we had, once again, standing room only. Uh, Friday will be in Raleigh, North Carolina, or in North Carolina, uh, with uh, doing some round tables and listening sessions uh, over in Florida on uh, uh, Monday to do that. Uh, and we're going to continue this because it's the audit phase of the Farm Bill, but uh, preparing for the Farm Bill. But I, I'm just really impressed and pleased with the information that's coming in. And not just those who are who testify, those who submit written testimony, uh, not just the hearings that we've had, even the, like the hearing this week when we had the uh, uh, undersecretary and uh, the uh, veterinarian with APHIS, uh, but uh, the listening set, but, but also the uh, the online contributions and ideas and thoughts and what I like to call homegrown solutions. I think that puts us in a really good place going forward um, to, uh, to be able to write a, a farm bill. And I stick to my overall goal. One is done on time in a bipartisan, bicameral way, and most importantly, highly effective. 
And we, the highly effective part comes when we, we do a good job of listening, uh, using what God has given us, two ears and one mouth. I've been very, very proud of uh, uh, the members of the, of the committee and the members off the committee who have, have joined us uh, in these listening sessions. The fact that we made history with, uh, I'm not sure the last time, if ever, we had a Speaker of the House sit in on a Farm Bill listening session. That happened to Larry California, and it wasn't a photo op. Uh, Speaker McCarthy came early, met with, uh, talked with, uh, informally with farmers and ranchers, stayed the stayed for the entire two and a half hours of the listening session and and listened, exercised those listening skills the whole time, um, and then stayed afterwards to, to follow up network. And having the, I think that's one of the strengths we have of the leadership, I think on both sides of the aisle, uh, of the work that we're doing on the Farm Bill, uh, the bicameral work that we have, the Four Corners, uh, Senator Stabenow, uh, who's be, uh, you know become a close friend uh, working together, uh, Senator Bozeman, who was a mentor of mine when I came into the, into the house and we were Bible study buddies together so that's a that's a pretty firm foundation to build off of and then uh, and ranking member uh, David Scott who's just a, a good friend great colleague I was proud to support him when he was chairman and I have his full support now that I'm chairman and so those and uh, the quality of the committee there's just a lot of good things that are that are there I, you know the one thing that probably is our biggest challenge uh is the clock uh the fact that this current farm bill expires the end of september but i am an eternal optimist and uh leaning in on uh, uh, uh on getting this done uh we uh, we have a, an obligation to those hard-working families that provide us food fiber building materials and energy resources and quite frankly uh all the all families across the country uh that we um you know, rely on us to, to have access to the nutrition, uh, have the, the economic impact that rural America provides, uh, the jobs, um, the, the just tremendous contributions we have to a better environment and a cleaner climate, because uh, those are all things that happen through the uh, number one industry in this country, which is agriculture, uh, an industry that can be defined very simply, in my opinion, by three words, science, technology, and innovation. So I want this to be a farm bill that we uh, that certainly serves uh, everyone for 23 through 28, but it should go beyond that too. I mean, it, uh, we want to provide a platform uh, for the farm of the future and uh, and American agriculture to continue to be um, uh, to to to. Uh, uh, not to be static, but to be dynamic in, in what it does and what it provides. Uh, you know, we're, we're somewhere around 279% increase in productivity. We slipped a little bit with uh, to that lumber with, um, you know, with inflation. Uh, but I, uh, I think our goal is to do this in a way where we put policies in place that by the, by the year 2035, we'll see American agriculture productivity go to 400%. Um, and, uh, and I think we, I'm pretty confident we can do that. Pretty enthusiastic about it, actually. So. Yeah. Well, first of all, if it's not broken, don't fix it. And it's not broken. Um, uh, and it's not static. We're not standing still in our productivity. We're not standing still. What were the contributions we're making to uh, with science, technology, and innovation? Um, how do we incentivize that? Because, we, well, we make sure that programs uh, like all those under the conservation title are robust. I think we took a transformation. Another positive, I think, makes me optimistic is all the great things we accomplished as four corners at the end of the year last year. You know, the rice fix, the CWD bill, the um, 
reauthorizing 700 different chemicals for pesticide use, but specifically the Sustains Act, which is transformational, creates a public-private partnership. Um, folks that want to get their climate credentials as supporting sustainability and and uh, and climate can make a, can write a check to USDA, and so so that's part of it. Making sure the programs remain incentives. I tying the hands of our. Uh, why why would we do that when these programs work? When we've we've been continually increasing our productivity, um, there's a right way and a wrong way to to encourage, right, and to incentivize. And it's not to tie the hands by by tying some any type of uh, uh, anything to crop insurance uh, that would uh, that would do that. I, I think it would have an adverse effect. Uh, I really like what we're accomplishing the way it is, and I'm not looking to see those strings attached. Jim Wanger, farm broadcaster from Kansas, asked the chairman about what his thoughts are with regard to this expanding drought across the southern plains. Yeah, well, my personal approach, it seems like everywhere I go, it rains. I've gotten the nickname of Rain Man. I'm, I saw that movie. I'm not sure I want, really want that title. And we showed up in Kansas, and it, it was going to rain. And so we went out to the local Walmart and uh, tried to buy a raincoat. And, and the clerk looked at us and said, uh, sir, we don't sell those things here. You know, <laughs> it doesn't rain. So I had to find a waterproof jacket instead because it did rain while I was there a little bit. And some places enough. Um, well, you know, part of it is, is certainly, as you said, strengthening um, – uh, strengthen crop insurance. Uh, we need to do that. We we don't want to weaken it in any way. It's a great tool. It's important. Um, you know, agriculture is capital intensive. Um, credit, um, you you need that, and, and the lenders like crop insurance. Uh, the other thing, I lessons I think that we're looking at and talking about is what can we learn from the significant amount of money that was spent outside the farm bill in disaster relief. Uh, now, some of that was trade, some of that was COVID, but there was still a large, large part of it was weather-related, right? Too much, too much heat, too dry, too wet, too cold, too windy, you know, too hot. Um, and so I think part of what we're, we're looking at is and hearing about, and like I said, we're in an audit mode right now. We'll have to start to begin to write this thing soon enough, um, is what can we take and incorporate from the that outside disaster relief, which was like 80% of what we spent on agriculture was outside the farm bill um, through disaster relief. Uh, but it didn't come with any certainty. And I'm absolutely certain that there are farmers, farms and ranches and probably forestry operations uh, that went out of business uh, before those disaster checks arrived. Um, well, that's not helpful. Uh, and, it, and there's no certainty. Lenders don't like it. So it's difficult to borrow uh, and to get the credit that you need. So, you know, we're, we're trying to look and see what can we incorporate out of that. And I think, we, I think it would be more affordable for the government, too, if we put it into the, 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 uh, the space of crop insurance. Um, so it would be good with reliability um, and certainty, provide more certainty. Uh, but quite frankly, I think we could do it probably more efficiently. It won't be everything because there's when you're wrestling with nature, there's always a curveball coming someplace that we need to be able to to respond to. But as you all know, it's you know disaster relief is, is is tough. You know it's it takes Congress a long time to do the right thing. That was House Ag Committee Chairman G. T. Thompson talking with farm broadcasters in Washington D.C. for NAFB's Washington Watch. Stay tuned. Josh Linville of Stonex joins us next with a look at fertilizer. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. 
At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private Healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is $35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we look at the market trade on Thursday, looking like continued follow-through risk-off trade being seen here. We saw that Wednesday. We saw that in the overnight session and seeing that again here so far today. Although we have come off of our lows, that is a bit of a good sign here as we work through our trading session. We are being led to the downside, though, by Kansas City wheat and by the soy complex. That KC wheat trade really kind of saw a fake-out breakout on Monday here on the charts with that strong day we saw to start the week since then we've really been pulling back continue to watch the russia ukraine situation and its impact on the market trade crude oil price is also down nearly two percent here so far today we're down uh, around the 77.45 level really recessionary fears once again playing into this market creating headwinds for just the broader commodity sector on demand destruction worries here as we work through the month of April. Now, we did see weekly export sales on Thursday morning. Nothing really to write home about. A decent rebound on the beef and pork side, but that was really about it. Now, looking at livestock trade, cattle have come well off their lows early in the session, waiting on more cash cattle activity here as we work through the day. Thursday, haven't seen much activity in the north. We are trading right around unchanged while we have a cattle on feed report coming up Friday afternoon. So could be seeing a little bit of positioning here from traders in this cattle market. Hogs remain under pressure. Tested the recent lows yesterday. Looking like we're going to test them again here today as we're down moderately in the trade. Corn anywhere from about 5 to 8 cents lower. Soybeans 7 to 12 lower. And the wheat markets, Chicago wheat down around 10 to 11. Kansas City wheat 15 to 20 cents lower. Spring wheat is down moderately this hour. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, 
empowered to perform. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA marches along here this morning. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We're going to talk next with Josh Linville. He's the vice president of fertilizer over at StoneX. He keeps up to speed on how that industry continues to change, given all the massive global volatility that has been with us for the better part of three years. Josh, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk a little bit about the situations that are developing here in the fertilizer market. Josh, last week I was out on the road a little bit, had the chance to see some farmers across northern Illinois, central Iowa, getting some anhydrous pulled onto those fields. How's anhydrous application looking across the across the Corn Belt? It's definitely trudging along. Um, now, I will say it still feels today, and that's too early to make an official call, but as of right now, we still feel like the anhydrous run of the spring is going to fall a little bit short of expectations. Uh, we went into the spring expecting to see about 2.07 million tons uh, be applied. Since then, it was a rough March spell. Uh, a lot of territory couldn't get that early jump on it. We know a lot of ground can be made up. Farmers do that all the time, do a tremendous job of playing catch-up, but we did go ahead and lower our number down to 1.9 million tons, but still a very, very solid run. Indeed. I mean, especially considering the weather challenges that have been in effect across so much of the Corn Belt this past year, Josh, if we're going to be a little light getting that gas on the ground here this spring, what's that going to impact? What what risks or does that raise here as we get deeper into the growing season? Well, then all of a sudden we got to start looking at alternatives, and, and that's where urea and UAN really start to step up, and we've got to watch that uh, for signs of popping that price up. So, you fall short of anhydrous, assuming the nitrogen demand doesn't change, which we learned our lesson last year, right? About this time, we thought the same thing. You know, we didn't get the anhydrous on. Oh, my gosh, we're going to see all this demand flow over. And ultimately, we slashed our corn acres. But if we do keep hold of the corn acres and we keep it where we believe it's going to be, and we've got our number at 92 million acres for this season, um, all of a sudden, you've got to start converting that over to an alternative source. And that's where those numbers really start to grow. Uh, if your anhydrous switches over to urea, you're talking just shy of two tons of urea to make up for one ton of anhydrous. If we're talking 32%, now you're talking two and a half, three tons to make up for that one ton. So that's where all these numbers really start to balloon up. And UAN urea is going to struggle because it's too late in the calendar to bring new imports in to cover that demand. Well, Josh, we've been talking about the pace of imports and how supply chains have really kind of thrown that asunder. How did urea, how were we, how did we hold up on urea imports, especially so far early this year? Well, it's actually been behind a lot of folks in the industry's expectations. Uh, we had a lot of people who were sitting there saying back in November, oh my gosh, your imports are going to be massive. There's nowhere else in the world buying it. They're just going to surge into the U.S. And it didn't happen. We got the actual numbers. And they said the same thing. Well, it's just going to go to December. And that didn't happen in January. We actually just got the February numbers here about a week and a half ago. Same thing. It came in right at our expectation, our forecast. There was a lot of people expecting much, much higher numbers. So we're nowhere near as far ahead as what we were this time last year. Sufficient product. I don't want to sit there and have anybody thinking, oh, my gosh, we're short, we're in trouble. It's just not as long as what some of the expectations were. We're sitting comfortably, but there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Uh, that data doesn't come out until 60 days after the fact. So here in about 10, 15 days, we'll find out the information for March, and we'll see where we sit. 
Well, Josh, as you look out into the spring, one of the, the constraints in the urea market, if I recall from our past conversations, is the fact that China just has not been in that market. Are they making a push to re-enter urea exporting? They are, and that is a big, big win for global buyers, so those, those folks that are looking for lower values. Um, the Chinese government had already loosened the restrictions on phosphates exports, and they are the largest producer of phosphate in the world. They are the largest exporter of DAP and MAP in the world. So that, of course, allows more product to flow into the worldwide market. Urea, we hadn't seen yet. We thought, oh, okay, maybe they're going to continue to keep this at home. Maybe they see it as more of an energy. They don't want to export energy. They're having all sorts of issues there. But all of a sudden, last Friday, we saw that. A lot of reports, a lot of rumors popping up that the official announcement is coming on urea. They are going to loosen the export restrictions. It's going to be back to full tilt, back to full volumes. All right. Well, the other concern I've got from a global production standpoint, again, going back to the natural gas price spike of last year, it's European production. Josh, can you fill us in on how those European producers have, have revamped production? Yeah, and actually, that is the last holdout as far as all these ridiculous events that have happened over the last two, two and a half years. Europe is the last one. China was one of the last two, and that finally fell. So now we, we're watching Europe, and that will be the last step towards normalcy. Fortunately, we've seen those natural gas, the Dutch TTF, fall from $103, which was a high back in August, down to current values, which have been ranging between $12 and $15 in MMBTU. The fortunate part is we saw European production climb from 20, 30% of normal up to 60, 70%. The unfortunate part is even with us being in the teens, a far cry from where we were at the highs, production is only 60, 70% of normal. And it is really raising, at least personally, it is raising the fear of how low do natural gas prices need to get to turn on that remaining 30, 40%. Or a worst case scenario, are we gonna restart those plants? Well, I, that's a really good question, Josh. I mean, what do you hear from the industry? Is it still an open question out there for those European producers about whether or not they'll they'll get back to 100 percent? It is. It's obviously nobody really has really, really good insight because a lot of these plants, it isn't in their best interest to be open and honest with that information um, if, and put yourself in the shoes of a producer. You want higher prices. That's where you make more money. And if you go out and start singing the gospel of, hey, we're restarting, all of our towns are going to start to return, we're going back to normal, well, prices start to fall. So they're not going to give that information. They want to keep that as shady as possible. They want to make their margin. So that remaining 30 40%, it's a really big question mark. There's some that are speculating. We probably need to see that natural gas get below $10 in MMBTU, you know, get down around that $5, $7 range. And you look at the Nord Stream pipeline is still down. Uh, there's still a lot of questions. They're still very dependent on imports. Like I said, it, it's a question of, and this is growing in my mind, will we actually see these plants restart? Well, Josh, while we're thinking of natural gas prices, I know here in the U.S. we've seen natural gas prices fall precipitously here in the past couple of weeks. I think here just earlier this week, we touched a 10 or 12 year low in natural gas. Is that going to increase domestic mm -hmm. nitrogen production or is ours, uh, we'd have to build the facilities? It, we'd have to build more facilities. Uh, these plants are in the North America region are already running flat out because they are still making very, very good margin. They're still making very good money. So it's in their best interest to run these plants as hard as they possibly can. Uh, seeing the natural gas price drop, unfortunately, from a U.S. perspective, all that does is grow the margin on the production side. Uh, unfortunately, the global values are still being set mainly off of that European natural gas price. 
All right, Josh, I, I want to turn our focus to UAN just briefly. In your last fertilizer update, you mentioned that a lot of UAN demand was waiting on the sidelines. Farmers are watching this price drop. Is that still the case? And especially if I'm going to be short on NH3 application, should I be getting some UAN purchase now? It does feel like the market is still very reluctant to step in. Uh, we've seen prices down tremendously, and of course, it's human nature to sit there and say, well, if it's dropped this much, it ought to drop more. Uh, we do it all the time. I do it all the time. I, I'm far from outside that norm. Um, but I will say, I have a little bit of concern that right now we've seen urea values jump up. We have not seen the similar thing on the UAN, so that differential is actually very, very tight. It's all in the Gulf of Mexico. It's only about two cents per pound of actual in. It was 30 plus cents uh, earlier this winter. So that has gotten a lot more aggressive. It's gotten a lot more in line with where the rest of the natural or the nitrogen prices are. So, yeah, we need to be worried about more demand flowing from urea. That last minute purchases flowing from urea to UAN. We do need to be worried about if there's a shortfall in anhydrous. Like I said, we went from 2.07 to 1.9 million. There's a couple of gentlemen that in the industry, I think a lot of their information, uh, they were sitting there saying that number needs to be lower. They need needs to be 1.6, 1.7. Now you're talking about hundreds of thousands of tons of anhydrous demand that need to switch to something else. That could grow that UAN demand number substantially. It can, and it can grow it quick if we keep these tight weather windows together across the Corn Belt. Those farmers could all be rushing in at once to get that secured. Josh, while we're thinking about the industry globally, potash is one of those things that uh, definitely saw trade routes disputed. I know Dow Jones ran a story recently talking about the expansion of potash production in Canada. Is that something you're hearing growth in, in new sources of fertilizer? And if so, what's the expectation on timeline for more supply coming onto the market? Well, it takes a long time uh, from concept to actually producing the tons. It, it's a multi-year process, so it's definitely not something that's going to happen overnight. But that said, yes, that some of these mines that are sitting up in Canada can definitely expand from what they're producing today. We've seen a couple of restrictions because potash prices have been following fairly steadily since last March, April. Um, we are expecting some new mines to come online in Russia. So uh, potash market is still one. I think there's going to be a couple of hiccups here and there with the price. But overall, we still see that on a downward trajectory because we continue to see supply outpacing demand. Now, very short term, uh, it's probably a little bit of a flip-flop. With what we've seen on the phosphate market and the potash market as far as replacement pricing, we've seen those numbers jump up. And that doesn't happen if you didn't have a good spring. So we think we've wiped out a lot of inventories. That's going to give a little bit of a boost to price ideas. But ultimately, global price patterns are still negative. And Josh, you mentioned that's true, you believe, on potash as well as same story happening in phosphate right now. Yes, uh, we had seen nearby debt barges uh, on the river system. It, the values had been in the lower 600s, and all of a sudden last week we saw bids starting to jump up 650, 660. It was a situation where last-minute buying, last-minute demand was stepping out and saying, I've got to get these tons, I've got to get the rest of my season covered, I need to buy something. And they found out there wasn't a whole lot left. And so value started to jump. Still, All as we right. move forward, a lot of the futures markets are pointing to triple-digit drops. Okay, could see some price breaks in the future, folks. We've been talking with Josh Linville, the Vice President of Fertilizer over at StoneX. And Josh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, sir. And folks, stay with us. We'll hear from Rebecca Barnett, the Director of Animal Safety and Food Safety at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association here when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. 
Oil that runs smart. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength, a champion of courage, an advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the Foundation, foundation Fighting, fighting Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take Dig a Little, Learn a Lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. 
Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Before we go for the day, we're going to hear in just a moment from Rebecca Barnett. She serves as the Director for Animal Health and Food Safety at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. She's going to talk about some of the issues that are pending before USDA. Before we get to that, however, we do have some other news coming from the world of livestock. There is currently a case pending in the state of Oklahoma. A coalition called the Spring Creek Coalition has prepared a legal fight with the Oklahoma State Department of Agriculture, Food, and Forestry. What this group is arguing is that the Department of Oklahoma Ag and Forestry has been too quick in approving permits for construction and expansion of large poultry farms. Now, this case has been pending since 2018. It has been in and out of courthouses. It has been back and forth between attorneys. And recently, in fact, earlier this week, a district judge ruled that that coalition, Spring Creek Coalition, can take their fight to the courthouse. Now, they are working currently to set a future hearing date. But this falls on the heels of additional moves in the state of Oklahoma, changing the way that state approaches animal agriculture. Earlier this year, in a case between the state of Oklahoma and poultry producers, a federal judge actually found uh, for the state of Oklahoma, alleging that the poultry industry was indeed responsible for pollution on the Illinois River watershed. Now, the state and poultry companies in that case are still working on coming up with an appropriate settlement. Uh, the judge in that case specifically did give them um, a 90-day process in order to get this thing done. And we've got additional information on ethanol. On Wednesday, EPA Administrator Michael Regan testified in front of the House Ag Committee, and we're going to dig into a lot of his testimony here in the coming weeks. I think the House Ag Committee did a good job of, of uncovering a number of issues percolating at the EPA. But one of those that stayed on focus is the ongoing fight over E15 availability, 15% ethanol blend availability around the country here in 2024. They did put pressure, uh, 
representatives did put pressure on Administrator Regan to push that date from 2024 for year-round availability to 2023. However, he did say, quote, there would be a significant disruption to consumer pricing and the like if we move too quickly in 2023. We feel very confident that E15 being sold year-round will be eligible and ready to go in 2024, end quote. I did speak with several folks from the ethanol industry, growth energy in particular, and they mentioned they will continue pushing for an emergency waiver for access this year. We do have another couple of weeks. The industry would be able to get that waiver in place and get E15 out to stations over the summer. Well, as I mentioned before we go, we're going to hear from Rebecca Barnett from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Rebecca, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me today. Food safety. We've got animal health. We've got a lot of things on your plate. But first and foremost, Rebecca, I want to ask you about animal disease traceability. What has USDA proposed out there on this? Well, thank you for the question, especially right now as we're looking at the proposed rule that that comment period will be closing soon. And so we're anticipating some changes with the transfer to electronic identification and really enhancing that system. And so NCBA is looking to engage on that conversation and really raise some even questions about making sure that we have confidentiality of the data, that we are making sure that this is a system that's in place that at the speed of commerce. And so we're really looking forward to it because we know how important it is if we were to have a foreign animal disease. So how would this proposed animal disease tracking work from USDA's perspective? Is it going to be an electronic ear tag? What are they looking at, Rebecca, if we're not up to speed on it? So it would be electronic ear tag, which is so important because right now with the current system, it's metal ear tags. And so if you had an outbreak in any state, you might have to go back and track through a paper file. And so this would be much quicker. It'll be much quicker, but I imagine, as you said, that data has to be collected somewhere. It has to be monitored somewhere. Do we have any idea as to the makeup of what that system is going to look like quite yet? So that is a great question. I think they're still looking at exactly what that system looks like. Right now, it could be held at the state level with state animal health officials or USDA APHIS, as well as there's different associations or groups out there, I guess you could say companies. They're also looking at what would a private system look like. But right now, it's not quite in the air of what exactly it is, but looking at those different three different areas and seeing where it would go. I think it ideally, it's going to be a system where they all have to play together. It all has to play together. That's certainly key when we're dealing with all of these different stakeholders in the beef industry. Rebecca, timeline. This is a proposed rule from USDA. Can you walk us through what we could expect as producers as the year goes on on this animal disease traceability issue? So as soon as the final rule comes out in place, it will be a six-month implementation period. So there will be 180 days after that that it will go into effect. And then that's when producers can expect that this will uh, be effective at that date. All right. So we've got to watch for that proposed rule or the final rule to come out later. And then I imagine there's going to be some trainings and so on that probably NCBA will be working with producers if there are some big changes. Correct. So NCBA, we're going to look towards educating producers and try our best to make sure that producers know what's in front of them. And so that's going to be an important goal for us. And then right now, too, that is only for cattle that are 18 months of age or younger. And so there may be a transition later on. And so we'll keep monitoring that and make sure producers are up to speed on it. All right. Well, as long as we're talking about issues we're monitoring, Rebecca, one story that has grabbed a lot of headlines over the past couple of years is cell cultured meat. We continue to see companies coming out with, uh, with new products. What's NCBA watching? What are you watching from a food safety perspective on these cell cultured meat issues? 
So what we're really watching is we saw FDA come out with the second pre-market consultation for a chicken product. And so we have not seen yet what USDA is going to do in this space, but there was an MOU that was signed in 2019. So we're really making sure that that's upheld. And then from there, we're going to see where USDA goes with labeling and how they're going to handle the food safety component of that. What are the concerns with labeling at this stage in the game, even though I know it's still early? So we really want to make sure at NCBA that there's no misguidance to consumers. We want to make sure that the label is transparent and that we want to compete in this space, but we want to make sure consumers know what they're consuming. All right. Do we have any rulemakings on the horizon with regard to cell culture meat, Rebecca, or is this just something that'll dribble out as these companies make investments? I think it's something that's going to dribble out. We can maybe anticipate towards the end of the year from USDA, maybe potentially an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, but we still don't know. All right, Rebecca, lots on the plate here as we get into summer. For producers who want to keep up to speed on these issues, do you have any recommendations for places they can go to learn more? So they can go to NCBA's website, and that's a fair place to check us out. We're also on social media, so feel free to reach out, and we're happy to stay tuned. Rebecca Barnett, Director of Animal Health and Food Safety Policy at NCBA, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Be sure to join us tomorrow, folks, for more AOA right here. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. There are a ton of social networking websites, but one stands apart for a very special reason. This one saves lives. It's MatchingDonors.com. MatchingDonors.com links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. In the U.S., 22 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant, most of them for kidneys. If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, visit MatchingDonors.com, home of the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. MatchingDonors.com. Kids across America are going to school hungry. Millions of kids every day. But one simple thing can help change all of this for a hungry child in America. Good healthy food and the energy it brings. With help from caring people across America, No Kid Hungry is providing healthy meals and hope to hungry kids so they can build better futures. To learn more about ending child hunger in America, go to helpnokidhungry.org today. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. 